Welcome to this episode of the Thirsty Podcast. I'm Pastor Michael Zarling. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And happy St. Andrew's Day, Nathan. Happy St. Andrew's Day to you as well. <laughs> so uh, Nathan had pointed that out to me just before we started recording because now we can begin Advent because we celebrated St. Andrew's Day. Yes, because according to, I think, Pope Gregory the Great, Advent starts on the closest Sunday to the Festival of St. Andrew. Yeah, although here at Water of Life, we began Advent a week early, just took advantage of the four Wednesdays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Usually we don't have that. So last night we had uh, an O Antiphons service. And what the O Antiphons is, is the seven titles of Jesus in the Latin version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then we sang those verses. We only have four in our current hymnal in English. Uh, but we did those last night. Uh, and I mentioned that too because on the Raised with Jesus podcast, I recorded each of the little devotions with the scripture reading and that hymn verse. And that'll come out later on. They're about two to three minutes, but just a, a nice little focus on, on that theme of the different titles of Jesus. This Sunday, then, we begin Advent, the first Sunday in Advent, with the theme of the King shall come. He is coming to save us. Uh, do we want to talk about the gospel reading that we are not using this week? Yeah, so traditionally in the old historic liturgy, the gospel reading for this week is the gospel account of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday of Christ. Um, kind of tying together Jesus's coming into Holy Week and then also his coming in the flesh and tying through the idea that really the entire reason that Jesus came in the flesh was to suffer and die. But kind of starting the Advent season out with that idea of the arrival of the triumphant King and looking ahead at how Christ, you know, comes as the Savior born in the flesh. Uh, that's the first option, um, but because it's kind of an awkward thing sometimes talking about Lent right before Christmas, people aren't really in that mindset. Um, there is the other option which we chose to use. Also an interesting note that tie in with Lent, uh, historically Advent also was a time of 40 days of repentance and fasting leading up to the high festival of Christmas, just like Lent is repentance and fasting leading up to the high festival of Easter. And uh, we didn't use that first option, like you said, of Palm Sunday, because last Sunday we celebrated Christ the King, and it's really kind of the same theme then. So, if you use Christ the King last week, then you would use the gospel lesson from Mark 13 for this week. Also, I listened to the Preacher's Podcast. You can listen to that on the Raised with Jesus Network, too. And the preachers there had a good explanation of uh, the historic use of Palm Sunday text for the first Sunday in Advent. But it was also uh, pointed out that uh, when we came out with uh, when we were using in our church body, uh, we have not been using that Palm Sunday text from about 1970, 71. 
So I was thinking about it when I was listening, going, well, that's how old I am. So it's hard to change anything. You know, if I've been hearing, you know, doing it this way for 50 years, it's hard to say, all right, now let's go back and do something different. You said 1971? Yeah, so, something like that is when we as a church body started using, not using the Palm Sunday text as a first Sunday in Advent. So like 10 years before my life even began. Yeah, yeah. So talking about age, my wife texted me the other day saying that she had broken the camera on her phone. And I said, well, we can take it and get it fixed. She said, you do realize my phone is seven years old. Well, she mentioned that to our seventh grade teacher. And I, I told her, you should tell him that, it just remind him that your phone, because he had commented, your phone is seven years old. I said, you comment to Brandon, Mr. Mueller, that he was, in, he was a senior in high school when you got your phone. This is funny because it also came up, we were talking about coveting uh, the other day in catechism class, and I mentioned, you know, what, what is every commercial basically? It's telling you that what you have isn't good enough. You need to go and get something better. And I said, what are we on, iPhone 15? And they're like, Pastor Klusmeyer, what do you have? I said, I have an 8. There's an iPhone 8? <laughs> yeah. I always ask the kids when we talk about coveting in seventh grade if they'll trade whatever their, you know, say PS5 is for my PS2. Uh, you know, it, no one wants to do that. And no one really had any. I used my, one of my Atari cartridges as a sermon <laughs> illustration, and no one had any idea even what that was. Uh, so since we've been talking about the gospel lesson, do you want to read the gospel lesson, and then we'll, we'll begin our discussion talking about that. Yes, the gospel from Mark chapter 13. Then you will see the Son of Man coming on clouds with great power and glory. At that time he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the sky. Learn from this illustration of the fig tree. Whenever its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things happening, you will know that he is near at the doors. Amen, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert and pray, because you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away on a journey. When he left his home, he put his servants in charge and assigned what each one was to do. He also commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or early in the morning. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, keep watch. So we are now in the season of Advent. Advent means coming. And there are four Advents that we focus on during the four Sundays in Advent. Much of the time, people are only focusing on the Advent of Jesus coming as an infant in a manger. But that first Sunday in Advent is focusing on him coming in the clouds. And that's why most of our churches have blue altar cloths on the altar, the pulpit, the lectern, because he is coming from the sky. Uh, the second Sunday in Advent is John the Baptizer appearing. So it's uh, in him announcing Jesus coming. Then the third Sunday is also with John the Baptist, but we oftentimes focus on 
how Jesus comes to us in word and sacrament. And then that fourth Sunday in Advent is we focus on Jesus coming to as an announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary or to Joseph. And this year, that fourth Sunday in Advent is December 24th, so you get the angel announcing the birth of Jesus in the morning, then, Lord willing, you come again in the afternoon or evening for the Christmas Eve service in the evening, and now you celebrate him, him being born and laid in the manger. And that's a nice tie-in at the end of the season. It's also kind of an interesting tie-in at the beginning of the season. I know we don't have end times technically in the church year anymore, uh, but the last four weeks have all been kind of end times themes, and this first Sunday of Advent kind of fits that progression. And it's interesting just reading through the gospel lesson from Mark coming after off the last four weeks with the gospel lessons from Matthew is you see kind of Jesus's references to some of the parables he taught uh, in those last couple weeks that we looked at. And then let's go through these verses. Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It's just interesting how Jesus uses the title Son of Man here. Here you would think he would emphasize his divinity because he's coming in the clouds, but he's emphasizing his humanity. The Son of Man is the one who's coming. Well, and every time he uses the title, the Son of Man, it really is him going back to that prophecy of Daniel, which also has a very much end times flavor to it. Yeah, and then this is a great picture that Jesus gives. He's sending out the angels. So if you compare this with 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul writes that on the last day there will be a trumpet call and calling the dead Out of their graves, the voice of the archangel and Christ will come down. When I teach that, I usually explain how, in my imagination, time stops. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that this all happens in a flash and the twinkling of an eye. So quicker than you can blink, Jesus is coming down. All the elect are gathered by the angels and so forth. So in my mind, the only way that happens is now time stops. And because now we're, we've entered eternity. God has ended this world and the universe, and now we are in the new world. And he sends the angels out to the four corners of the earth. Uh, notice how this is a parallel to Revelation from every nation, tribe, people, and language, so the, the four areas, and he's sending the angels out to the four corners of the earth. And we see that picture a lot, that idea of four um, pictured the earth, the completeness, all nations, all people being gathered. Uh, And two, that from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the sky, that no one is going to be left out when Christ returns. Everyone will know and everyone will be gathered together and all will be judged on that last day. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And then as I was thinking about this, you know, as I'm getting older, you and I have talked more about preaching and so forth, so I've been cognizant about how I preach. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write really tight sermons now using, like, one overarching illustration and so forth. Because I remember re, uh, preaching a sermon one time, and afterwards a guy named Les, one of our members, said, wow, you gave us three stories. I said, oh, that probably wasn't the best thing. 
uh, having lots of illustrations because it can confuse the message. And yet, well, Jesus does that here. He uses two, two illustrations, but it's trying to convey a, a similar message. So what's the message, Nathan, with the fig tree? Well, the fig tree is saying that, you know, obviously in the spring of the year, when we see the leaves starting to appear, you know, in Judea on the fig tree for us, most of the trees here in Wisconsin, um, except for the pine trees. But when you see them starting to put out the buds and the little leaves, we know it's spring. We know that summer is right around the corner. That's the same thing Jesus is saying. When you see these signs of the end of the world, it means it's right around the corner. Uh, what does he say in the next couple of verses? He says that he he is at the door. The time is near. And again, it's one of those things we struggle with because we look at this and say, well, it's been, it's been almost 2,000 years. That doesn't really seem near. But again, God's time is not the same as our time. But we also see all of the signs have been fulfilled. Christ's return is imminent. It could come at any time, at any moment. And that's why Jesus gives us parables like the fig tree to say, look, it's it's happening. You'll know it's coming. Uh, the parable that I preached on a couple weeks ago of the 10 of the 10 virgins to be prepared because the master could, the bridegroom could return at any moment. Yeah. And then, like I was saying with illustrations, it sounds like Jesus is mixing his metaphors here because in the same sentence, you know, he says, well, you've just seen summer coming because the fig tree is is budding well now jesus is at the door okay being at the door and fig trees really don't have anything together but you understand what he's talking about and this is an image you might see in some churches in stained glass windows or paintings of jesus on one side of the door uh, i know in talking with pastors about that some have taken that as saying well you know, seeing that image of Jesus at the door. See, you have to open the door to let Jesus in, a very un-Lutheran way of looking at it. But that's not the imagery. The imagery is saying this is how close he is. He's on the other side. It's kind of like uh, you know, if you just celebrate a Thanksgiving or you've got people coming over for, for Christmas and you're really rushing to get everything swept and mopped, the dishes done, everything all ready— and then all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. The guests are there. Are you ready? That's his imagery here. And what he's really warning is that we know he's coming, so we want to prepare for him, not that all of a sudden we have guests at our door or, you know, we had invited family to Christmas and completely forgot they were coming, and now they're knocking on the door ready for Christmas dinner, and you're still in your pajamas going, but, why are you here? Yeah. Or, Or it's... Uh, time for Thanksgiving, and you haven't put the turkey in yet. Yeah, <laughs> that would be kind of bad. Uh, but then you could always go out for a Christmas goose. Oh, I haven't had goose in a really long time. I love goose. Oh no, there's a there's a specific movie reference with that. Oh. That you know, a Christmas story at the end of the movie, they have the the Christmas goose and I, the head still on it. I I will confess, I have not watched a Christmas story for a very long time. Oh my goodness, you are a I know. I apologize. However, on a side note, uh, my sixth grade teacher decided that was an appropriate movie for us to watch as our Christmas movie that year. <laughs> Very good. Uh, but then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That is just the power of God's word 
of being able to see that uh, God's word, whether it's 2,000 years old in the New Testament or when we look at the Old Testament lesson, which I'm going to be preaching on this week, which is older, going to be about 1,500 years with Isaiah, uh, I mean 2,500 years with Isaiah, it still is applicable. And that that word will remain. So here's another movie reference. Uh, so, do you, oh man, I'm just trying to think of the name of the movie. I think it's Eli. It's with Denzel Washington where he's a blind man. Have you ever seen this one? It's an apocalyptic movie. Yeah, I, I remember watching it. I don't remember anything else okay. about it. Well, the point of the movie is he, he's blind. You don't know that until the very end of, of the movie. But he it's apocalyptic, and uh, all the books have been destroyed. And there's one guy that he realizes that uh, Eli has has this, the book of Eli, yeah, and has this book, and he wants it because uh, you know, he doesn't have this one in his collection. Well, at the end of the movie, Eli finally gets the book to where it needs to be, which is, I think, like San Francisco. It's in California, and it's in Braille. So no one could read it except for Eli, which you don't realize because he's been moving like a person with sight, but he's blind. But God has been protecting him all this time to get him there. And this is the only Bible left in existence. So now they're going to be... uh, translating it they're going to use Eli because he's the only one that can read the braille they're going to be rewriting it and then making copies because they actually have a printing press and so forth it's just a, I think it's a powerful movie there's a lot of good action scenes and so forth too but just a powerful scene at the end where God's word works and God's word uh, will last until the end of the world you should watch it I uh Sorry, this just complete. When you said they were going to retranslate it, my daughter showed me last night on YouTube. There is now uh, someone has translated the Bible into Gen Z. Oh, with all of the colloquialisms. So Kaylee played for me the wedding of Cana, which was a very interesting interpretation of God's word. <laughs> uh. And this is interesting when Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So how, Nathan, does Jesus not know when Judgment Day is? Well, this is an example we see of the distinction between the persons of Christ, where Jesus is both true God and true man, with the communication of attributes and all those other big words from Midler dogmatics at the seminary that I vaguely remember. Um, But it's that idea that when Jesus was true man, for a time he set aside the full use of his divine powers. He didn't make full use of them, and one of them is He did not have the knowledge of when the end of the world was going to come. Now, there is debate whether that distinction still exists now that he is our ascended Lord or now that he's taken up the full use of his divine abilities. Does Jesus now is aware of when the end of the world is going to come? But at least in the context of Mark here, Jesus, in his state of humiliation, did not know when the end of the world was going to occur. But he could talk about the signs that would point to the end of the world. Right. 
And then he uses another illustration. He says, watch, be alert, and pray because you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away on a journey. When he left his home, he put his servants in charge and assigned what each one was to do. He also commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. And when I read that section, I think of growing up on our farm. Uh, we had just a, a small farm, 84 acres. We would bale hay, uh, do corn and oats and so forth. We had several beef cattle, pigs and sheep, chickens and so forth. And during the summer, uh, my two younger sisters and I would be home to take care of the animals and the farm while my mom was a baker and my dad was uh, a postal worker. And we would goof off all day long, even though we were assigned chores like the dishes and the animals and so forth. But we lived in a dead-end road, and we knew when mom and dad were coming home because they lived close to each other so they could drive together. Around 3.30, one of us would be watching in the, in the picture window, and when we saw them coming, that's when we would start working. You know, you know keep watch. That's not really what God wants us to do is wait to the last moment. Now we see Jesus coming down. Now we got to get ready. This reminds me, too, in, in grade school, um, I went to, well, at the time I thought it was a smaller school. I think now there was 100 students, and I don't know how we fit in that school building. Um, but there were only several teachers, and they pulled a lot of double duty, and our one teacher was also the principal, so sometimes he would leave us alone well, he had to go deal with something administrative, and we would do the same. We were given an assignment. But, yeah, we would set someone at the window of the door to watch for when the teacher was returning. And then we'd all go back to doing what we were supposed to do. But, again, not a good yeah, example. Not good examples. Uh, and so the whole point of this is to keep watch. So anything else that you're thinking of with this text about being watchful? Well, like I said— this mark here, and I, I didn't look at the wider context um, before we did the podcast this morning, but it does really seem to be Jesus kind of summing up in this last paragraph both the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and the parable of the talents, that that idea of being watchful, making the most of the gifts and abilities that God has given to you and working um, knowing that the master could return at any moment. Since you mentioned Mark, maybe one thing we can also mention is last year, last church year, we were in year A, which is Matthew's gospel predominantly. Year B, now we're in Mark's gospel. Now Mark is a shorter gospel, and so you're going to hear some things from John and so forth, but it'll be Mark and then John and then in year C, which would be 2024 Advent, that would be Luke's Gospel. I'm excited because my commentary that I have for Mark is Daniel Deutschlander's commentary on the book of Mark. So I'm looking forward to working through that this season and hopefully getting some fantastic insights. One of the things I remember in studying Mark, and we'll see this this year then, is the Greek word edu. Immediately. Immediately. It, it's like Mark is the breathless gospel. Is He's got to get moving. And you notice that when you read Mark's gospel. So listeners, pick up Mark's gospel. It's, a, it's an interesting thing, especially this time of the year, when you're going to hear you know, Luke's gospel at Christmas, and that's going to be uh, 
That's going to be the birth of Jesus from Mary's point of view. You read Matthew's gospel, that's the birth of Jesus from dad, from Joseph's point of view. I describe John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's Jesus' birth from heaven's point of view. Mark, he skips all that. He gets right to Jesus' baptism as immediately. Here we go. We're going right to Jesus' baptism and his ministry. It is interesting, you know, when you, the Bible's a unified whole, but when you start seeing some of the unique nuances of the different writers, Mark with the immediately, Luke, I remember when we worked through the book of Acts at MLC, Professor Frederick mentioned that Luke apparently was a boat nerd. Oh, really? Because Luke, Luke, like, it's really nautical with some of his terms, like, they're very specific, like, it's almost like boats were his hobby like he really liked boats interesting i never heard that one all right well let's get into the old testament lesson and i'll be preaching on this text isaiah 64 verses 1 through 9 isaiah and so isaiah is seeing this in the future and what he's seeing is that god's people have been apathetic in their uh in their faith, they are pathetic in their sinfulness and so forth. They are worshiping false gods. They are not worshiping the true God. And so God sends enemies over and over. And now Isaiah knows that the children of Israel are going to be carried off into captivity in Babylon, that the Babylonians are going to come carry off their, their citizens of Judah they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to totally level the, the temple. They're going to ransack it of all of their uh, holy items. And Isaiah sees all that. And so he's going to call down, uh, you know, the opening hymn that we're going to be having at our church, O Savior, rend the heavens wide. And that's based on this first verse. Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and come down. Mountains then would quake because of your presence. As fire ignites stubble and as fire makes water boil, make your name known to your adversaries, then nations would quake in your presence. You did amazing things that we did not expect. You came down. Mountains quaked because of your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has understood, no, eat, no eye has seen any God except you. Who goes into action for the one who waits for him? You meet anyone who joyfully practices righteousness, who remembers you by walking in your ways, but you are angry because we sinned. We have remained in our sins for a long time. Can we still be saved? All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a filthy cloth. All of us have withered like a leaf, and our guilt carries us away like the wind. There is no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. So you hid your face from us. You made us melt by the power of our guilt. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry, Lord, without limit. Do not remember our guilt forever. Please look closely. All of us are your people. Uh, so since I'm going to be preaching on this, and I'll add my commentary if you want to begin well i just found it interesting and i wanted to look up the reference real real quick the first part of this is clearly isaiah is making a reference to uh, i would say to exodus 19 
to when the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to make the covenant with the people, when the mountains quaked, when there were those earthquakes, when God's presence was revealed to the people, um, and that Moses, at the command of God, had made that barrier in front of the mountain for the people to not cross because the sinful people were in the presence of the holy God. But then again, the mighty things that the Lord had done. And I'm trying to remember, I know, I don't remember if it's just with the mighty things. I know whenever God's strong right arm is referenced, the picture that Isaiah often wants you to call into mind is the parting of the Red Sea. That great act of deliverance that God did for his people, that he saved them from the hand of Pharaoh. And so when Isaiah is using this picture, he's calling the people back to that moment, the beginning of the covenant that they made with God. And then he talks about there how we have not followed the covenant. We broke faith with God. God did not well, break faith with us. Yeah. Uh, before we get to that, yeah. I want to I talk sure. about the enemies coming too, that Isaiah wants the uh, God to come down in his righteous wrath, his just judgment upon God's enemies, these Babylonians, in the same way he did it in the past. Uh, and there you can think of the way he did it with the plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh and his army, the way that God took care of his enemies in Jericho, making the walls of the city come tumbling down. Or thinking of one of the interesting ones I thought of that most people uh, may not remember are when the Canaanites were attacking the Israelites and then God sent hailstones in Joshua chapter 10. I thought of Gideon, where the Lord confused Midian and they all died. And now I can't remember the exact timeline. I know Isaiah was a contemporary of Hezekiah, yeah. uh, but I do know there is that, because I was just looking at it for something the other day, um, there is that instance when God does intervene when the Assyrians are laying siege to Jerusalem, and the angel of the Lord kills, I think it's 150,000 yeah. of, I think it's Sennacherib soldiers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are all great examples that God or Isaiah wants God to come down in justice, but the way I lay it out in the sermon is what you're getting into next is uh, Isaiah realizes this, and I think we do too, because we see God's enemies all around us in America too, Uh, whether it's uh, the transgenderism, the humanism, the secularism, the abortion, uh, homosexuality, divorce, living together, all these kinds of sins that we see in our world, and we, we feel the pressure, and we will want God's justice to come down on those enemies until we realize... We are the ones who deserve yeah. it. I was going to add to something you mentioned yeah. last night, the neo-paganism that's prevalent, and then I don't know if you've come across and seen in the news well, lately. Well, you want to explain the neo-paganism? Well, there does definitely seem, as we are moving into a post-Christian culture, people still have a natural knowledge of God. We are wired to look for God in nature. And what people do as they move away from the God of the Bible, the true God, they're going to fill that spiritual void with something. And it really seems to be we're moving into, again, worshiping creation, talking about 
Mother Nature, you know, talking about the earth almost as if it is a god or goddess, Mother Nature, and that idea that we need to, well, you even talk about here in some of the some of the climate change that the earth is angry. Yeah. We must appease the earth. Um, and it's just very interesting that we're cycling back into that paganism. Yeah. The, yeah. What I had written was uh, the paganism that of ages past we see in our current age. Yeah. And then two of the other things I've seen in the news recently is this year, there does seem to be a sudden increase in some of the satanic temples mm. putting Christmas trees up at different displays they're putting up satanic christmas trees and then the other thing i don't know if you've come across this that ever since the the war in israel broke out there is a growing trend for people to state that they want to convert to islam yeah oh no i haven't seen that but when i was writing this i was thinking of the meme you know have we become the bad guys you know you know we we talk about all the bad guys that are out there and then realize, oh, is that us? And then, and that's where uh, verse, well, I want to come to verse four later on in, with the gospel section. But if you look at verse five, Isaiah says, but you were angry because we sinned. We have remained in our sins for a long time. Can we still be saved? All of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a filthy cloth. So did you want to talk about that filthy cloth? I don't really <laughs> want to. Um, it, it is in the Hebrew. It, it is talking about that being a, a menstrual cloth, something that was both dirty and also ceremonially un, unclean. Uh, and what's interesting, too, about this verse is Isaiah is not talking about unbelievers here yeah. he's talking about believers how our righteous acts are like filthy acts. yeah he's right. not saying those guys out there and i think sometimes both pastors and christians can get that idea of oh we got to preach about the bad sins out there no he says all of us yep and the nuance here that we we have to make the distinction is while it is true that our good works are pleasing to god on our own, our good works are not. Our good works are sins. It's only because we have been washed through Christ that God now accepts our good works as good and holy. On their own, we could live the most sanctified life ever, and it is still sin yeah. because it's not done in faith. Yeah, and it's, he also says before that it's something unclean, referring to the Old Testament Levitical laws where there were certain foods and so forth that you could not eat. They were unclean animals. I used this illustration yesterday in a Bible class I was teaching, and I heard another pastor use this, and it's, it's perfect. The pastor had talked about how he had been on a long trip, 14 hours with his wife and young children, and they were on their way to visit his parents. It was a nice house. Uh, he said seven acres, and when they got there, finally, then he let the dog out, and the dog ran out into the woods, and while they unloaded everything, and before he went in the house, the dog came back, but he reeked because he had rolled around in poo. And the dog is so happy. He thought that he smelled fantastic. It was a wonderful <laughs> fragrance to a dog. But then the pastor was 
pretty frustrated because before he could go in and relax and say hi to his parents, he had to go give the dog a bath. And I think that's a great illustration of what we think. When we we work around and are as Christians thinking, oh, we're so good. Look at all the righteous acts that we're doing for God and for others. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're just rolling around in our own filth and we think we're pretty good. We smell good. And then because when you, you, know, you can become nose blind to filth. That's why, you know, garbage men and farmers and so forth dealing with pig poop and, uh, and cow manure or garbage men with everything they're throwing away, they don't smell it anymore. We can become that way with our sins. We can become like that dog until God sees us and he smells us. I mentioned this the other day. We had one of the pilot lights on our stove at church here went out, so there was a little bit of a gas smell um, in the basement where our offices are that I did not notice because I worked in food service for a while and had gas cooking appliances, and I also did maintenance for a while and had to deal with sewer issues all the time. So the sewer gas and natural gas smells are very similar, and I cannot smell either one really anymore. I am nose nose blind to that. The other thing I was going to mention, I like to put on one of the, if I've got room in our service folders, I usually put um, a Luther quote or a quote from the confessions or something in there. And I just came across one, I think it's for next week's bulletin, where Luther talks about how self-righteousness is worse than gross sin. Because you know that sin is sin, but that idea of self-righteousness, that's the one that's hard to spot. And it leads us away from salvation just as much as gross sins. Yeah. And then he says, all of us have withered like a leaf and our guilt carries us away like the wind. So think of, you know, the dry leaves that we have uh, skittering around, scraping. Uh, even now here where we live, the, the snow and the ice is melting. Uh, it's going to be like 40 degrees for the next week. And so you're going to hear the, the leaves blowing outside again. That's what we are. Uh, and then he says, in the end of verse 7, so you hid your face from us. There, think of the benediction, uh, the Lord turn his face toward you. Here Isaiah is saying, because, of, because you cannot see our unholiness, our unrighteous acts, our uncleanness, now you turn your face away from us. And you are angry. And he says, so how then can we be saved? Well, then you go back to verse, verse 4. This is how we're saved. From ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has understood, no eye has seen any God except you who goes into action for the one who waits for him. Because who would have thought that God would spare his people and give them deliverance by sending plagues, you know, locusts and boils and hail, uh, killing the firstborn of the Egyptian families? Who would have thought that God would come as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, that God would blow the waters apart and then drown the Egyptian army? Who would have thought that uh, God would send, God would save sinful humanity by sending his son? Who would conceive that God could save humanity by the conception of, of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in a virgin? Uh, 
who would who would think that God would die on a cross? Who would think that uh, the Creator would become a like the creation with human flesh in order to save that fallen creation? And who would have ever thought that if God is dead, He would then rise again on the third day? No eye has seen, no ear could ever think of those kinds of things. It was interesting. We were going through Psalm 22 in catechism class this morning and talking about the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just how, how difficult it is for us to understand that concept that on the cross, Jesus as true God was forsaken by the Father because in that moment, Jesus became sin. Jesus was separated from God and endured the torments of hell for us. And then I told them, and then God died. And they all looked at me, they're like, God can't die. I'm like, no, that, that is the mystery of the cross, that on the cross, God died. Because only the death of God could pay for the sins of the world. Yeah. Anything else on that verse? As we can get to the, the, last, the last two verses. No. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We just stop there. Because I think sometimes we read these things too closely, or too, too quickly. We should read it closely. You, Lord, you are our Lord and our Father. And just that word, but. Uh, in, I think in the NIV, it was yet, but or yet. All these bad things are happening, that God's judgment should come on us because we have become God's enemies. We've made ourselves God's enemies. And then Isaiah says, but now, God, you are Lord you are the God of grace and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And even though we have often run away, even though we are pathetic in our sins and apathetic in our faith life, still we can call you Father. Still every day, hopefully number, numerous times during the day, we can pray our Father in heaven. And I like that picture too, that... We are clay in the hands of the potter. That is God who has fashioned and made us, that God has designed us for a purpose in his church, that he has given us the gifts and abilities that each of us have to use in service to him, and that it is God who is fashioning us for those purposes. And thinking of the clay, one of the things that I like to do, because I get tired of just being in my office, so I'll go over to the preschool classroom and talk to uh, Mrs. Walker, the teacher, and Mrs. Hutchinson, the aide, and hopefully they have their, their Play-Doh out. So like last year I did this. I had read a story to them earlier. So I have uh, reading for the preschool through fourth uh, through second graders today, in fact, after we finished recording. And last year when I had read, one day I read the story because they were learning the letter a, I read ants and underpants. And then, so it was, it was hilarious because the kids all giggle every time you say underpants. And then I went back in the classroom and they were playing with clay. So then I made an ant in underpants. And I can make snakes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> the kids are really good at that too. Uh, but God fashions us. He, uh, it says in Ephesians that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And then that, that ties in that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags when we do them on our own, but when the Holy Spirit does them 
in us, now they're good works. And God, then God says, tying into the lessons from a few weeks ago, then he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I think it's always important to remember that God desires us to do good works. And as Christians, we do good works. But because we have that sin in us still, even our good works are tainted. And that should be a constant reminder for us not to become conceited and to start thinking that, well, we can somehow do these things to earn favor with God. We can't. On our own, even our best works are still tainted by sin. Even if we have the best of intentions, there's still a part of us that is going to be selfishly motivated to do these good things. It is only by being reborn in Christ, having faith in Christ, having Christ working in us, that those good works become pleasing and acceptable to God. Yeah. And he says, uh, do not remember our guilt forever. There, think of the imagery of the book of life, that in the book of life, only our names are written. Because Jesus, through his blood, has blotted out everything that we have done wrong. And then he says, please look closely. All of us are your people. And there I think of that phrase, your people, because tonight, by God's grace, in our Jesus Cares worship service, so that's a simplified worship service with for people with special needs, we're going to be baptizing four individuals, uh, a mom and her two children, and then a uh, Dana, who's 30 years old. And uh, yesterday I talked to Dana's parents about baptism. They didn't really understand baptism and so forth. And just to be, I think they were concerned that uh, the church and so forth would be taking their daughter away from them. And then I said, this is the Holy Spirit working because I had planned a week ago of what tonight's devotion would be. And the devotion text is from Galatians 3, 26 and 27, that we are all made sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. They're talking about the family of God that God will, the Holy Spirit will make for these four individuals tonight. And I explained to Dana's parents, we're not about taking Dane away from your family. It's just expanding the family. Now she has more uh, more family members. And one of our family members had given me uh, something that she had found on Facebook this last week. And it was, it was really sad. And what it is is this mom with her husband and children, one of them special needs, had gone out to eat at a restaurant and then the, the child acted up and they could not comfort this child. I, I imagine the child is a little older, uh, screaming and crying and so forth. And finally they had to leave the restaurant and the mom was uh, regretting that no one helped, no one reached out. And then she said, well, we can't go to church for the same reason. And the way I'll talk about it in my devotion tonight is saying that none of us know this family. Uh, and yet Probably most of the people that are there with special needs in the family, they are that family. Uh, and a lot of us who are at the service, who, don't, who do not have special needs members in our family, uh, we often don't know what to do when we see children and adults acting like this. And so the idea is, Lord willing, 
because we're all baptized members of the fa- of a family, we're going to try and reach out and help because we have all been made your people. And I think that's just, you know, one of the glorious things we have, that unity that we have in Christ, that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have those connections both to our Savior and to one another. And I think that's one of the real blessings of a congregation. Um, And I know still coming out of COVID, people struggle with the idea of coming back to church um, because it is convenient to stay home to watch these things online, but you're not getting that community that you have with one another. And I know sometimes we even have parents just with small children. Well, I don't want to come to church because if they act out, people are going to judge me. It's like, well, there are some that might, but they're not in the right. They're wrong. They should not be judging you. And us, like I've had people, oh, pastor, I'm sorry they were making noise. I'm like, I don't care if they're making noise. I am glad they're in church. That tells me there are children here. That makes me happy. Yep. You know, if they're getting, you know, really, really squirmy, you can take them out, but then bring them back in. No one, we're not judging you. We are happy you are in church. You're part of our family, and we want our family to be here with us. Yeah. Anything else you want to bring up with these two texts? No, I don't think so. All right. So uh, we want to encourage all of you to go to church. Uh, go to your pastor's Bible study. Uh, celebrate this Advent by watching for Christ's coming. So this is Pastor Michael Zarling and Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, and drink deeply from the water of life.